Hey, it's Jennifer. Last week, Cultivating Place put out a listener support challenge, and I am humbled and so very grateful for the response. We are well on our way to making our 100 new sustainers and donors by the end of this third quarter and the second half of this challenging and transformative year of 2020. As the independent creator and producer of Cultivating Place, I'm really proud to have a home on public radio, where open access is a foundational part of the ethos. And I'm honored that the podcast has almost 40,000 listens each month. We as gardeners are often equal parts introvert and extrovert. We like our thinking and being time in the garden but we also need the company of the plants, the creatures, the seasons, and one another. I love being part of your community, in your silence and in your social hour. This work in this form relies on your support, the community of listeners who value these dialogues to grow by. Thank you, truly, to all of you out there who support this program monthly. For those of you who are not yet sustaining listeners, please consider investing. To make a one-time gift or sign up as a sustaining monthly donor, follow the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. Any donation amount from $5 to $5 a month makes a meaningful difference to making this program you tune into possible. Join us. Click the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com, and together we will keep growing. Even better. Now for our conversation with the artist and creative Jasna Guy. You're going to love this one. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. I am very pleased to welcome to the program today an artist and a thinker and a creative and a connector who I have long admired in both how she sees and how she thinks about the world around us, specifically the plants and bees we so love and are so interested in helping and supporting in these times. Jasna Guy, it is such a pleasure to have you with me today. Welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. It's such a pleasure to be here. I think of you as an artist. I think of you as a scientist. <laughs> and I, and whether that's a citizen scientist or a gardener scientist, doesn't matter to me. <laughs> I think of you as someone who just really considers the, the finest of details in both the things you look at and the systems they represent. Will you please describe for listeners, Jasna, how you define yourself? What, what, what is your relationship to plants and their insects and these garden systems we love? Okay. So I, I look at myself as an artist, as an educator, and definitely as a citizen scientist, both in terms of the plants that I study and also the bees. So to put it simply, I explore the relationship between bees and flowers through science and art. On the one hand, I spend my time in the field observing bees and learning about the floral resources they need for survival. 
And on the other hand, there is this long meandering process of sketches, dissections, photos, studies, and drawings that form the basis of my two-dimensional works on paper, like the large blue meadow, for example, that I'm creating for the High Desert Museum. And also there are those quirky little video animations that combine photography and drawing and that explore some small aspect of bee flower relationships, or maybe there was just some purely botanical inspiration there. But altogether, through these art-making processes, what I hope is really to share my enthusiasm for them and to engage viewers in the wonders of nature. So when you say you are an artist and you mention, you refer to the Blue Meadow, can you specifically describe for listeners what your art consists of, what it looks like and what it's characterized by so that they can get a sense, if they haven't um, seen your work, what it is that I see in my mind's eye when you refer to it? Okay, so uh, to talk about the Blue Meadow, it's composed of drawings and specimens, actually dried specimens, which I have scanned, and I've put them together into, into a composition. And I wanted to represent this meadow, not in the, in the ordinary way in which we might encounter a meadow in color, but to do it in a, in a form that, that transforms and reinterprets this idea. And the inspiration for that came from my work with um, cyanotypes. I love the way cyanotypes mm. um, represent flowers. And, you know, it's such an old technique for documenting botanical specimens. Yeah. And, you know, my idea was really to go directly into the field to, and to do the cyanotypes in the field there. But that turned out to be a really big disaster because it was either too cloudy or it started to rain when I had my papers out or it got windy and blew all the specimens away. <laughs> so that was really quite a disaster. I had to look of another mode of representation for this idea. Mm -hmm. So that's how uh, I came upon, first of all, turning everything into black and white and then enhancing it by um, inverting the images so that they look more like um, x-rays, kind of a translucent, and then putting a blue filter on top of that. That would kind of play on this cyanotap kind of idea. So when I see them, and, I, and in, in my mind's eye, they mm -hmm. are very much like an ethereal x-ray. And so... They are both the thing, whether it's a, a flower or a bee with a flower, and they are the idea of that thing. Yes, uh, in its in its processes and in its places. So, this creativity in which you choose a botanical specimen and or an associated creature, and you begin to work with it is the sort of place in which your art exists right now. Before we go deeper into that and the, the whys and the hows, Jasna, take us back a little bit. Where, 
where do you live now? Where were you born and raised? And what what grew you? Like, who were the people and plants and places that grew you into a person for whom this would be your chosen expression? Oh, wow, Jennifer, that's um, a lot. <laughs> you have to go back very far because um, I'm actually um, rather advanced in age, but I'll do my best. Here. So, so I was born um, in um, in Croatia, and um, we we came to Canada in the late 1950s. We were political refugees from um, at the time communism, and so I had all of my education in North America, in British Columbia, to be exact. And you know what, art was. Always, you know, that art impulse was always there. And, you know, as a child, I drew and I did some paintings. And, you know, throughout my younger years, I had a few classes at the local art school. And I knew that I really wanted my life to be in art. I just didn't know how to incorporate that. So after high school, I studied art history at university. And followed that by getting married and um, having a child, having a family at university. I was studying Italian Renaissance art. I, I did a teaching degree after, and I was an art teacher for about 15 years or so. You know, this was a, teaching was a wonderful experience, totally engrossing. And, you know, while I gained so much from working with young people, I mean, their energy level is extraordinary, their creativity. It was wonderful. However, it did leave very little time for, you know, sustained personal art making. So, I mean, the big change for me came at around the year 2005. And this is in terms of my relationship to art making. I resigned from teaching. My son was grown and, you know what, pretty well launched by that time. I studied, I started a master's program at university. So that's kind of in kind of in a nutshell, the background. Many people uh, fall under the, the beautiful umbrella of art, but not all of them fall under the umbrella of botanical art. Talk about the journey from being an art teacher and going to get your master's in art and choosing to engage in the art that you engage in. Are you a gardener? What brought you to your devotion, really, to botanical art and then the processes of pollination, ecology, and floral resources, and bees, specifically bees, Jasna? I am a gardener to begin with. Um, my mother was a gardener. She, she was kind of a haphazard gardener, but she had a lot of different kinds of flowers and she grew a lot of vegetables so there was always that in my background but i must admit that when i was younger i wasn't that interested in her garden and her gardening it always seemed like a lot mm -hmm. of work but uh just to go back to how it, you know it's interesting when i said that i had this big change and and i devoted myself full-time to art one of my very first projects was based upon roses and rose petals. And it was, it was a project which was, 
it was a, a project of mourning in actual fact, because when I started the master's degree, I had some very one, interesting, wonderful teachers. But one of those teachers was the most influential for me. Her name was Dr. Cheryl Mazeras. And, you know, she, she created these courses for us that took place right in the gallery. So we would look at, at art and um, she created spaces of interpretation, of, of uh, relational engagement, of education. And I found this very inspiring. This, there was this combination of feminist studies, cultural studies, and philosophy. And that I was exceedingly enriching. Sadly, mm. Cheryl passed away a few years later from breast cancer. And, you know, I did not know how to deal with the grief and how to, how to process those emotions. And, you know, the question that was constantly in my mind, you know, between the tears and the horrible sadness was how could I transform this work of mourning? So I looked at how we mourn and how we remember others who have died culturally. You know, the monuments, the funerals, foundations that are set up for them, um, libraries that are dedicated to them, the symbols that we use for mourning. And I, um, I, I, look, I took one of our ubiquitous symbols of love and loss, the red rose, and I thought about how Cheryl had informed me and influenced me, and that was through her work, her work on philosophy. And so I took one of the books that she used in our classwork called uh, Jean-Luc Nancy's The Ground of the Image. And I decided that over the course of one year, I would uh, combine these two aspects, the rose petals with the philosophy. And I started with a dozen roses. I removed all of the petals and then one by one with a, a fine stylus, I tattooed, that is made tiny little holes to form letters, words, and sentences onto each rose petal. And I did this until I finished the entire text of Nancy's Ground of the Image. And his work is enigmatic, I find it enigmatic, and poetic, the, his writings on aesthetics. So for example, he'd have I would extract little bits, which, I, which is what I still do with the writers and the poets. For example, on one rose petal, there might be something like the image touches, draws, extracts, or another one, a place without place, or perhaps a third. This paste of words, these petals stuck to the tongue, bloom, fjord, fleur, flower. I mean, those, those kinds of little phrases were exceedingly evocative for me. So this is what I actually did. Thousands of rose petals, hundreds of days. This was a totally immersive experience filled with both love and loss. And this, and, and this project allowed me to explore new media and new places of representation. I took risks on what art could be, and I also made mistakes in the process. You know, but using these rose petals as a medium was absolutely fascinating. The red color like blood, it would come off onto my fingers as I was tattooing. 
the texture of the petals themselves. You know, it's like the texture of flesh. And the sound of the stylus penetrating the tissue, you know, it's like wounding and scarring the tender tissue. So, and the fragrance even, you know, sometimes it was very head, heady depending on where I got the roses. And, and at other times they would be delicate. Mm-hmm. But even in the dried petals that I still have, these tattooed rose petals, the fragrance is still there. It was truly a multi-sensory experience of touching, truly thousands of petals uh, that I went through. And it was astounding to work yeah. on. Yeah. And, and you did this for one full year. I, d- I actually did it more than one year because once I finished that book I started on another one changed the color of the rose petals I changed it to white because I had I had transformed through this process of working I'd actually transformed the grief yeah. and and used the used the art as a form of transformative engagement I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Jasna Guy is an artist whose visionary and liminal work is based in close observation of the plants and pollinators, specifically bees. Her ethereal representations bring heightened understanding and awareness. We'll be right back for more with Jasna. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. I can see her, can't you? Jasna at a desk or a table, hunched over her array of rose petals, carefully and mindfully piercing and tattooing words of love and loss into each individual petal, composting and transforming loss and grief into art and beauty, and new memories overlaid onto previous memories. As I think of this, and I think of last week's conversation with Colleen Southwell of The Garden Curator and her deep belief in the importance of the stories our gardens hold, I wonder, isn't this what we're each doing in our own ways in our gardens? We are piercing and tattooing and narrating and overlaying our stories in plants and flowers and arrangements and seed and soil onto this earth for us to hold, for us to recognize ourselves ever more clearly. We are our gardens, the physical reality of our gardens and the grandest, greatest ideas of them. We are the gardeners and the storytellers and the seeds of the many gardeners' stories to come. We are writing our life stories each and every day. Epic, tragic, humorous, romantic, silly, malleable, and also very, very durable. Even when our gardens fade behind us, the shadows of their memories, their ghosts, are still there, written. Did you know that with carbon testing, the lines of shrubberies and pathways, trees and different perennials, and cultivated crops even, can be distinguished in their places many hundreds, sometimes thousands of years later? From the so-called waffle gardens of indigenous peoples on the high plains near Abiquiu, New Mexico, to the lost gardens of Heligan, 
Garden stories are written everywhere, all around us. We're back now with Croatian-born, British Columbia-based botanical artist Jasna Guy. Her photograph-esque, cyanotype-like, x-ray-like macro-explorations into the world of pollination and bee and flower relationships is revelationary. Where, where do you go next after these words and rose petals. After this experience, I still worked with rose petals for quite some time. I expanded the project. I actually started printing the rose petals. So I went from the, literally from the tiny or the miniature to the gigantic. And um, I did a library project based upon that where I took the books that Cheryl used for her PhD thesis. I went to the library. I sought out each book one by one and then read a chapter or two or even the entire book and placed a transcribed, inscribed rose petal into the book as a memento of Cheryl. And um, that project, sorry, I still well up with emotion when I think about it. I would imagine, yeah, very, very poignant and personal, yeah. Hmm. So... I was um, given the great opportunity to actually exhibit some of the works there. And uh, with a fellow artist, uh, Cindy Machusuki, I created a video that interpreted the, the petal, rose petal projects in a different way than the two-dimensional work did. So that was fabulous. And then, you know, from, from the rose petals, I, I started, well, I started listening and paying more attention to the environment without a doubt. I looked out from, you know, from the year, these years of really looking in and being focused on myself and my grief, I started looking more outside and at nature and being in my garden. And of course, at that time also, um, honeybees were very much in the news. And I started my kind of the research into the botanicals and into bees with, with, with the honeybees. You know, I'm sure you remember having seeing headlines like 5 million bees right. lost or beekeepers um, losing 2,000 hives. I mean, hardly uh, a week would go by where we wouldn't see headlines like that splashed over across the newspapers or you know, over yeah. the radio. Yes, I, I remember it very vividly, very viscerally, yes. Mm-hmm. It, it was quite mm-hmm. astounding, wasn't it? And it remains so, yes. So, so I thought, oh, okay, it does. Absolutely. It still, it still remains so. And actually, the problem is far more complex. You know, once we start including all of our, our thousands of native bee species, you realize how complex the issues are. So, you know, I, I even wanted to be a beekeeper. I took this lovely course on beekeeping uh, from this gentle teacher. His name is Brian Campbell. And I thought, I'm going to save the bees by being a beekeeper. <laughs> and there were so many aspects of honeybees that attracted me. You know, the fact that they lived on flowers most of the time, that they collected pollen and how they collected it, the production of fragrant wax, and the the, the gorgeous honeycombs. I mean, that architecture is amazing. And then there are complex colony structures. And I mean, 
nectar, collecting nectar and turning it into honey. That's wonderful. Astounding, amazing. Yeah, it's it's magic in a in a powerful way. Uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. Again, you know, in terms of of, of questions, I asked um, how you know, how could I represent this this new passion, this new love, and and new interest, and um, how can I interpret it and visualize it, visualize it, and take it into a different space of exploration. So I thought about this idea of the hive. So I was still working with honeybees at the time. And I thought, well, this is amazing. You know, when you think of a colony consists of about 50,000 bees, that's astounding. And um, so I, I took that concept and I needed a mode of representation that would have the possibility of repetition to it because I needed to do 50,000 of them. Oh, okay. So I chose relief printmaking, and I made myself these tiny little stamps out of, you know, the, the relief. Um, it's, it's like a rubber material that you can buy at an art store. And I would carve these tiny little bees about a, a, an inch across out of, out of this uh, material so that I would be able to stamp them. Then I created a design for myself based upon flowers on Baroque floral patterns. And I enlarged the design to be like a huge carpet because I had to do 50,000 of things. So I was, again, here I am, I'm working from this miniature, you know, the tiny, tiny bees, I'm doing something really, really huge. So I worked on uh, pieces of lovely Japanese silk tissue paper. It was, it's ethereal paper totally translucent and I stamped you know my design of bees in in sections because I you know my my studio has about a nine by nine wall so I could only work on nine by nine sections the paper was about 18 by 24 and I had when I as I worked on the process I had about 300 pieces of this paper done printed with bees the finished size was about 40 feet by 50 feet. Wow. Yeah. I, after printing each section, each piece, I would then dip it into melted beeswax. So it brought up that, you know, that sensory aspect of it. Not only did, did the, the paper itself feel like rose petals, so, you know, a delicate ethereal because it had been dipped in, yeah, this thin paper had been dipped in beeswax, but it was fragrant. And when the when the work was exhibited, it was you walked into the room and that's what you could smell was this fragrance of flowers, of nectar. Wow, Jasna. Oh. Along with this um, bee project, I also discovered in with my reading because I, I you know studied our cultural historical background. Um, and relationship with honeybees. I discovered this wonderful madrigal, which was uh, created by um, a, a Reverend Charles Butler in Britain at about 1630, I think it was. And he wrote this madrigal called The Feminine Mo Monarchy. So it's a four-part a cappella piece. And he wrote it um, partly by recreating the sounds that bees make, that buzz of bees. I was just thrilled with that. Wow, yeah. 
when I first started working on this piece, I got the great opportunity to show it, even in, in the beginning stages of it, um, in an exhibition called Cultivate. And it was a group exhibition with about 18 other artists who work, worked with a focus on the environment. So it was all to do with nature. For me, that word brings together, it speaks to the spaces, you know, the spaces that are both physical, tethered to the earth, and then our conceptual spaces. We cultivate ourselves spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, through our gardens, through nature. That word, cultivate, stayed with me all the way to the present day. And um, in for the exhibition in last year in Penticton, I used a quotation from Robert Harrison's book called Gardens, an Essay on the Human Condition, as part of the installation on the wall. And, and the quotation reads, it is not for nothing that the word culture has its roots in the soil. That's a beauty. Yes, yes, yes. And it's exactly why I chose the title of my program. Yes. So, yeah, that's a beautiful synchronicity. You've been at this work for a long time now, and it keeps sort of expanding and, and morphing a little bit. And it's fabulous to watch, like following your your. Uh, you know, technical work on on Instagram and then your visual work on your website and the exhibits. And I was so, so sad to not be able to come see the exhibit in person in the Pacific Northwest this past spring. But so talk about your most recent thematic work, how you are creating it and, and some of the goals and hopes you have around it, Jasna. I was so thrilled when Rebecca Alexander invited me to show at, at Washington at the Elizabeth C. Miller Library. It's such a beautiful location. The gardens are magnificent. I thought, oh, what a super opportunity to do that. And so um, we talked about what I might be able to, to um, include in this exhibition. So I've got some of my black and white based botanical imagery. I've got some of my, my um, actually dissection drawings, my botanical drawings, which I really just call sketches. And I've got, uh, I put in a few sections from the big B piece that was exhibited in 2015, the printmaking piece. And also I um, included the newest work that I'm doing now, the blue piece, bees. And related to those blue bees, um, I have bee specimens that are in the exhibit um, that were created, were, were done by Dr. Don Rolfs and his assistant, Lisa Robinson. And they're very, very beautiful specimens. They're um, done in a way which not many people do here in North America by having the wings kind of expanded just like you would for a butterfly specimen. It takes a it takes a lot mm -hmm. more work to do that. And so this is what um, Don Rolfs and Lisa do. And when I saw those specimens, I said, oh, I, I, please let me come and photograph these. And so I included those uh, blue bees, as I call them blue bees, because again, I needed a mode of representation that would take, that would bring something of the invisible to the visible, mm -hmm. and that would, would transform the work. So that it wasn't just the bee, because I knew that Lisa and Dawn would, would have bee specimens on display. I wanted them to have that, but I wanted to have another iteration of them. And that's how I created the blue bees and the smaller blue meadow behind the bees that are kind of the backdrop of the 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Jazz Nagai is an artist whose visionary and liminal work is based in the close observation of pollination processes around us every day, everywhere. We'll be right back for more with Jasna. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, you will know why I say this now once you hear the next section of my conversation with Jasna. I have very, very few rules as to what a garden is or how a garden should be created or cared for other than to please take on this mantle in life with love. And please don't use poisons. Along with that, oh, sisters and brothers of this garden life, one paramount rule of engagement with your garden or my garden or anyone else's garden is this. There is no being mean to the garden. No being mean to your garden. Not in your own mind, not to visiting guests, not in words or deeds. There is no being mean to the garden. Extrapolate this out some to the whole world of lives in the garden, and this one rule improves the odds for us all on so many life levels. Please be kind to and about your garden. We're back now to our conversation with British Columbia-based botanical artist Jasna Guy. She looks closely and lovingly into pollination, bee, and flower relationships in some of the most creative ways. And of course, when you say bees, we have moved far beyond the honeybee to include are the immensity of, as you referred earlier, to the, the issues facing all of our pollinators, here represented by the diversity of native bees and the pressure on their habitats, on their systems. Talk a little bit more about your learning process, like opening up in that way as well. That was a huge pivotal change for me because I was already so enamored of honeybees. And when I discovered that we had over 20,000 species of native bees worldwide, that you in the U.S. have over 3,600 species, and we in British Columbia have close to 500 species of native bees. That was such a world of opening when uh, I discovered that. I took a citizen science course with this, again, this lovely biologist and teacher, Erin Udall, and I learned lots from her. Um, I met uh, Lori Weidenhammer, who is the um, Madam Bee Speaker, and who was working on Victory Gardens for Bees, her book at the time. With Lori, we traveled up to Kamloops, where Lincoln Best and Erin Udall were doing a course on native bee identification. So Lincoln is a taxonomist who is now working for the Oregon Bee Atlas. When I look at the the range and the scope that you have included in the Floralegium that was uh, up in Washington and hopefully will be open to the public again, walk us through, like, 
your your processes for choosing the different specimens, the different sizes, and the different representations that we see there, including you know, the the pinned specimens and then your photographs of botanicals and the insects, Jasna? You know, once I started looking more deeply into the flowers themselves and dissecting them, what I realized at that point also was that there were spaces there in terms of exhibitions for having having the bees in the exhibitions as well. So it would, they would be wonderful spaces of uh, engagement, mm-hmm. spaces of education, and also spaces for demonstrating the diversity of uh, species, not only floral species, but also the uh, bee species. So for example, if I look at the work I did in Idaho, and um, the Seymour Art Gallery exhibition, I used the flowers that, that were more common here in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And that's how um, I would choose them. The ones for Idaho, I use the ones that we we share, because I wasn't able to go down and actually study the the specimens. So I used um, Marianne uh, Newcomer's book, Rocky Mountain Gardener's Handbook, as uh, one of my major sources, and you know a few other herbarium websites to study the flowers of Idaho. And the same thing for Washington. That's how I I, I worked. So. Just to reiterate that, so each exhibit you have put in place speaks to that specific place. Mm-hmm. That is wonderful. Well, I thought that it would make um, uh, it would it would be better engagement if what you saw on the walls and the bees, which were which Lincoln Best put into the display cabinets along with the two dimensional work, would there there would be connections, of course, between the work but also connections to space and place. So the Florilegium has been in Idaho, it has been in British Columbia, and then it was showing in Washington when we went into this whole um, new world order, as it were. <laughs> exactly. Going into these last two months of this pandemic and stay-at-home orders and just the distress and confusion around our world, has this intensified your interest? Has it clarified your interest? How have you experienced this time with your work? There, there are some, there are positive aspects and negative aspects, and most people would, would tend to say that too. The negative aspects are that I am not able to travel. If I had at the Penticton show, I couldn't go up to Penticton to do more studies. I can't go to Bend to study the flora around the High Desert Museum. And also, you know, exhibitions have been closed down and postponed. So those are the negative things. On the other hand, the positive things, I, I think that... I think that my, what I'm doing really more is focusing on my garden area and looking at the bees locally, very locally, you know, going to our wild bird sanctuary where that's um, close by, studying the native plants, studying the bees that I see there, going out into my, my own terrible, by the way, experimental garden, photographing bees there, looking at flowers, collecting specimens and analyzing them. So there have been positive aspects and negative aspects. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm going to stop you for a second and ask, why why are you referring to your beloved garden as a terrible experimental garden, Jasna? That is against the rules in my life. No being mean well, to our gardens. Okay, well, oh, my poor garden. You know what flourishes wonderfully here, Jennifer? What? The buttercups, the weeds. They do, they do so well. Well, do the bees love them? Well, the bees do like them. The, the very tiny bees like the buttercups. But, you know, all my, my, my perennials and my, my poor annuals, you know, every year I sow this attempt to sow um, uh, you know, this meadow of wildflowers and, and uh, attempt to uh, put in new perennials. My garden is, is very wet. I have a lot of cedar and fir trees around me, so it's a lot of shade. You know, I, I plant a plant. I, I, I pray, I beg it, I say, I'm putting you here. I don't know whether you're going to like it. And I hope you don't die. And especially when you're working with floral resources for, for pollinators, what is sort of critically important there is um, sun. Because yes. they, they need sun for flowers. It's, yes. <laughs> I, I think the, the buttercup and um, this idea of what we like and what is beautiful and what is also used brings me to your next exhibit theme, which, yes. you know, as you move from the, the Florilegium and what it is trying to represent, you have taken on another exhibit theme. And I love, I love the way you interweave right from the beginning, this direct correlation between the power of words and language and the power of botanicals and the natural world around us and where they meet that that's very moving to me and so your your new one pretty colon useful mm -hmm. pretty useful useful this is yeah. this is very interesting to me tell us about this one well, along with all my being out in the field with the bees and the flowers, I, I also enjoy reading texts that look at gardens, gardening, nature in, 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 from different perspectives. So in terms of this work, of the work called Pretty Useful, um, one of the aspects that I find um, fascinating is actually doing reading that, is, that looks at gardens and flowers and plants from different perspectives. And I was reading this philosopher, his name is Michael Marder, M-A-R-D-E-R, -E and he works at the University of the Basque Country. He wants to discuss flowers from the philosophical perspective. And uh, plants were never actually um, appreciated per se as, as entities. And he says, we also instrumentalize plants. We use them. You know, from the dawn of time, we have used nature. We've used animals and we've used plants. I mean, when you think about um, the Bible and how it says that God created man and, and God gave man dominion over them, and we still function that way. We really think we have the right to exploit everything without consideration. Michael Martyr, he asks, you know, where do we best understand a flower? Is it in the field where they grow? Um, whether we are constructed in our head, in memory and imagination, or within systems of thought, and that he means, you know, that 
linguistic constructions because everything we do is is interconnected with words and with systems of classification. So that's how the pretty useful came to be. Because on the one hand, when you listen to people talk about flowers, what do they say? They're pretty, they're beautiful. Or we consider how useful they are for us. You know, but do we consider how useful they are for for nature itself, for their being themselves, for the bees who need them as resources. I'm on a soapbox now, I think. <laughs> it's a soapbox we need in this world, Jasna. Tell us about what this exhibit consists of. Um, first of all, I did it um, with Lincoln Best, so he was my co-exhibitor. So Lincoln brought in all the bees of the Okanagan, which is a beautiful he he created three beautiful display cabinets, one of spring, mm. one of summer, and one of fall. So we had um, the floral specimens and the bees for those times of the year, which is really super. Yeah, I had um, my um, black and white images on the wall of different sizes, you know, going from the super, super tiny um, images to, you know, uh, my um, sunflower, which was blown up to be eight feet high. And some were some are are directly on the wall, like not a piece of paper that you put on the wall, but the image itself is on yes. the wall, which I yes. just loved. Like it yes. really, yeah. Yes. Thank you, thank you for for bringing that up. I would have forgotten it. Anyway, we that was the other aspect that I that I I wanted to incorporate this idea of that I draw these plants, not not only that I that I, um, um, you know, photograph them and scan them. But the drawing aspect is very important to me. And then again, working from something which is, is very small, a small specimen, and then blowing it up to be gigantic. What comes, springs to mind is George O'Keefe's statement of flowers. You know, when you see a small flower, nobody pays attention to it. But when she blew it up huge, everybody paid attention. And it... it- plays with our own concepts and perceptions of what is big, what is important, what is valuable, what is little, and whose whose view do we consider any of those descriptions from? Like from the bee's view, uh, especially as you were mentioning, our tiny, tiny native bees, like a little collected or a little osmia, a, a larkspur is enormous, right? And... Um, and when you think about taking bees away or taking flowers away, it's huge. In the Pretty Useful, there's a whole section of color swatches. Can you tell people about those? Ah, uh, yes. That's my pollen work. <laughs> All right. So I started the pollen work a very long time ago. It was already in 2012, I guess, I discovered this beautiful little book written by a British beekeeper. Her name is Dorothy Hodges. She wrote the book in the 1950s, so I was just a kid at that time. Her bees, she collected the pollen that they had on their hind leg, and for six years, she recorded the colors of those pollen specimens. She did it in watercolor. She drew bee parts, and she also uh, learned from a scientist how to use a microscope and looked at pollen grains and drew them. And she published this beautiful little book. It has 120 color samples, tiny little um, one centimeter, what's that, half an inch color samples. And I was just enamored with the work. 
it is now that little book is now on display at the Washington exhibit. That's how the work began. I looked at those pollen samples and her work, and I was absolutely overwhelmed and enthralled. So I decided that I wanted to recreate some of her experience. And so I, um, I did her color samples myself. I recreated them out of soft pastel and with um, on uh, mylar. And I did these small ones. They're about six inches by nine inches. And I did these color samples um, with the attempt of recreating what, what Dorothy Hodges had done. Now, that was the first part of the project. And what I really wanted to do from there was to go further. I wanted to find as many of those floral specimens that, that Dorothy Hodges had worked with. And this I did. And then I expanded it even more. And I keep doing this. So I have, well, I, I don't know, over three, 400 specimens, uh, I should say samples now. And so the way you do that is you find a flower. Yes. So for instance, I'm thinking of our lupin here and it's very yes. specific pollen color and yes. um, like our, uh, oh, there's one that has this beautiful blue and purple pollen. And so you, yeah. you find those and then you color match them the best you can I, or you... Yes. Okay. I do. I collect the pollen. One of the things that I noticed very early on was that the pollen is ephemeral. The color is ephemeral and the, you know, the, the chemical, whatever the thyanocytes or the uh, mm -hmm. anthrocytes or whichever they are, they fade and they change tonality completely. So that was very important for me to recreate the color sample immediately. But I do have the samples of the pollen, the actual pollen also. Oh, this is so great. So from pretty useful, where do you go from where do you go from there, Jasna? The big big exhibition will be at the High Desert Museum. I was invited by the curator Louise Shirley to have an exhibition of my work. She actually wanted some of everything. <laughs> and I'm going to be doing this again with Lincoln Best. And he is now the chief taxonomist for the Oregon Bee Project. And he's going to be creating displays of Oregon bees that highlight the this incredible diversity and beauty of Oregon bees. So one wall will be color pollen samples. There'll be uh, sections of direct drawing on the wall in graphite, enlarged um, florals. I'll have one wall which will be printmaking based upon that big piece that I did earlier. I'm going to have my um, a whole wall, a 25-foot wall of my black and white botanicals. And I will have one wall dedicated to one of my newest projects, and that is the, the cocoons, mm. which I think are just amazing that the bees spin cocoons. And uh, for me, that's extraordinary, that life process of bees. So and I, I created a little video, so there'll be a video uh, as well in the exhibition. And for the front of the gallery, uh, I'm doing a very large, I think it's going to be about 39 feet long, um, blue meadow. So that's going to be super exciting. <laughs> why, why is this important? Why is 
Why is this important in the world, Jasna? This is my mode of working. This is the only way I can draw attention to something. And I'm hoping that through this through these exhibitions and this aesthetic work of mine, that I will, you know, in some way that I'm advocating for bees, for our native bee species, and for nature in general, for all pollinators. Um, to me, that's very important. Um, last year, um, we organized this, this new, created this new society um, called the Native Native Bees Association of British Columbia, and it is a, a wonderful organization with uh, many young members, but also some of our um, big members like uh, Lincoln Best, for example, he's the taxonomist, he's in this um, organization, he is a, he is a Canadian actually, and um, so this is a, a group which was focused on advocacy and conservation of native bees. And each person in that group brings something new. There's a diversity of people. Um, you know, we have um, entomologists, we've got, um, you know, our, our, our um, president is Sarah Johnson, who is the, who is um, a SFU student, PhD. We've got uh, Tyler, who is also, uh, who is now at UBC. You know, I mean, every person that, that's in that group brings something new to the, the concept of conservation of native bee species. So that's, that's the bottom line for me. It is really about um, drawing attention to pollinators and to the work that is important to keep them going, to keep them surviving and thriving. Our, our way of loving and advocating for and expressing um, the way we, you know, the different ways each of us might cultivate our places, they all have, they all have a place. They all have a way of reaching different audiences in different modes and all together that is just so enriching to what it means to be human and to be gardeners, whatever that word might mean to you. And, um, it's it's a it's a wonderful affirmation of of how we can be better here i think it's been really a joy to speak with you i want to thank you for this tremendous opportunity because not only did i get a chance i mean to to talk about the art you know you don't often get to do that it's true you know during the exhibitions people ask wonderful questions i'm very appreciative of that but you know what you made me do <laughs> You actually made me go back all the way from the beginning and to look at everything that I had done. And that's a, a, a very um, an enriching way of, of looking at one's life. Jasna Guy is a gardener, a thinker, and an artist who works in a variety of media, from drawing to photography to relief printing. For many years now, she has focused her work around bees, honeybees, native bees, and other pollinators, and the complexity of their environments. She creatively explores floral resources, including the habitats, nectar, and pollen critical for pollinators, who are in turn critical to the flowers and the habitats, and ultimately to us. 
Her work offers a new set of probing, thoughtful eyes with which we can re-see our world, from pollen grains to biodiversity, and perhaps to re-envision our own roles and responsibilities and joys while we're here. Join us again next week when we do some wonderful talking and growing with the voice and energy force behind the Black in the Garden podcast. Cola B. Talkin' is with us next week. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Make sure to check out the artistic perspective and vision, from blue bees and floral part x-rays to a rainbow of pollen, visible in Jasna Guy's work. That's all at cultivatingplace.com in this week's episode notes. Check it out. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.